We talk about our friends, don't we? I mean, we do. And, and I don't mean in a, in a bad or a gossipy way. These are your friends, after all. I mean, it's your friends, and, and we do talk about our friends. I mean that when we're in a conversation and something is said or something happens that reminds us of one of our friends, uh, we, we tell whoever's with us, well, I have this friend. You know, and we share a story, you know, we share a story about our friend and some of the details of the friend that relates to the situation that we're in. I tell people about you guys all the time. You know, I, I hope you're not a little freaked out by that. Uh, just this week, I was telling another pastor who's going through a tough legal situation, um, you know, with some members in his church, not he personally, but what, with what's going on in there. And I told him about what was happening uh, with Lily's court challenges and, and how that all turned out. I, somebody, I was talking with somebody that had some questions about finances, and I told him about Ken and Dana's experience with Financial Peace University and some of the things that got it done there. I've told many of my neighbors um, how Dave came over and leveled out my lawn in 20 minutes in, in a way that would have taken me over 20 hours to get half as good, uh, you know, as it took him 20 minutes to take care of this stuff for me. Um, I've told several people already about uh, Joanne's, just the, how she... Uh, you know, was looking for direction and peace and how God guided her and just brought real peace uh, to her as she's made the decisions about further treatment. I've told many people about Ken being a walking concordance, uh, about how at 94 years old, Corliss still reads his Bible every evening. You know, well, more than just the evening, he reads it throughout the day. Uh, you know, at 94 years old, still wanting to grow. I've told people about how Sharon remembers all of the kids, each of the kids individually in uh, Sunday school, you know, and, and bakes them this, this great big cookie thing, you know, to, and just the, the neat things that could be. I, I, you know, I talk about things that I have done with many of you um, that, that's just what happens we tell people about our friends you know and and you're my friends so I tell people about you uh, today we're looking at what Paul tells us about some of his friends as he concludes the letter to the to the Colossians uh, he brings up some of his friends what he has written to them about reminds him of, of some of what's gone on in some of his friends lives and some of those that he sent with this letter to the Colossians. And so we're going to be looking at that. But before we get to that, let's pray together. Father, you are a loving God, a gracious God, a God who calls us your friend, and a God who invites us into his family. That's a tremendous gift. It's a tremendous honor, a tremendous privilege. And we thank you so much for that. We ask that you would guide our thoughts now, as you can do, that you would help us to um, connect with your word, our lives, with the reality of who you are, with the reality more and more of what, what it, not just what it cost on that cross, but the reason and your love that pours out to us. Don't let us ignore that. Scripture tells us, there is no greater love than a man lay down his life for his friends. Thank you. Thank you for that friendship. Thank you for your willingness to be our friend. Guide us into your word. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 4. 
And, uh, and as a bonus for you today, um, both babies that were born last month are here today. Um, that's got nothing to do with the sermon. It's just something that... I've noticed uh, on there. Paul mentions in these verses, we're, you see we're going to be in chapter 4, verses 7 through 18 of Colossians. If you get confused, uh, I'm going to be reading from the Holman Christian Standard. That's the Bible that's in the uh, pew rack in front of you. Uh, so if you get confused by me reading something different than what you have, you might want to turn there in the pew Bible. If not, turn it into uh, somewhere else. And I'd encourage you again to keep it open. Uh, Paul mentions 11 of his friends here as he brings this letter uh, to the church at Colossae to a close. And as he's pulling it in. Now, for a few, he only mentions their name, really. But it's clear that they're known to the Colossians. Uh, we hold our friends up as examples to others. When we talk to people, you know, we hold them up as examples and, and, and tell them about our friends. So let's look at what God has Paul highlight about some of his friends, beginning in verse 7, actually. We covered seven. We, we covered part of this last week, but we want to pull back into it. Verse 7, uh, Tychicus, our, and remember, Andy, a lot of good names in here for you for, for the next one. Tychicus, our dearly loved brother, faithful servant, and fellow slave in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I have sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know how we are and so that he may encourage your hearts. He is with Onesimus, a faithful and dearly loved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything. They, they will tell you about everything here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, as does Mark, Barnabas's cousin, concerning whom you have received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. And so does Jesus, who is called Justice. And these alone of the circumcision are my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epiphras, who is one of you, a slave of Christ Jesus, greets you. He is always contending for you in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. For I testify about him that he works hard for you and those in Laodicea and for those in Hierapolis. Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas greet you. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her home. When this letter has been read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord so that you can accomplish it. This greeting is in my own hand, Paul. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Now we're going to move quickly through what we can learn here from some of these individuals. We're not going to cover them all. Uh, like I said, Paul just mentioned some of them. While there are still things we can we can learn about them, um, we're just going to highlight uh, some of the qualities here of the individuals. I, I think it will help us learn some things for our living. Uh, we looked a little bit last week at Tychicus, and what I want us to notice this week is what's said about both Tychicus and Onis- Onesimus uh, together. Uh, you know, it says that they are both faithful. They're described as faithful. They were both faithful to God, first of all. Now, you can't say that about everyone. In fact, Paul doesn't say it about all of the 11 he mentions here. Now, it's not that they weren't faithful to God, but what it is, is is the guy, you know, for these two guys in particular, their faithfulness stood out. It was, it was something that stood out. It was something that Paul really gravitated to. It was something that got his attention. You know, their faithfulness to God was worth pointing out. Now, they were both also faithful to Paul. That's really part of friendship and what part of friendship is. You know, it says that he could trust them. Notice, he could trust them with his reputation. 
Now, that's a great quality. Uh, Paul knew his name and his reputation were safe with these men. You know, look, look what it says. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He's with Onesimus. They will tell you about everything here. About, about everything here. They were free to tell the Colossians anything about Paul. Paul could trust them. He could trust them with anything that, that went on, with anything that they knew, with anything that happened, that as they would relate not only the incident, but Paul's character, he said, they're free to tell you anything at all about me. What, you know, what, what a great picture there. You know, to have someone who will pass on an accurate picture of you uh, and the events that you're involved in, it lifts a burden off of you. Because you see, then you don't have to go back and correct what has been said. You don't, you know, you don't have to straighten things out. You, you don't have to defend yourself because someone else is trying to make themselves look good at your expense. Or because you know that they, they will twist the story and, and you know, and, and just put you down a little bit. And you, and you don't have to worry about that. It's a comfort to know that your name is safe with someone. That, that really should be the relationship of the picture between a husband and a wife. You know, that, that, their, your name, you know, as, as a husband and wife is safe with your mate. And it doesn't matter. You can tell them what, whatever you want. These guys were faithful to God and they were faithful to Paul. Now Onesimus is a runaway slave, was a runaway slave here, and Paul met him while Paul was in prison, and he was able to help Onesimus come to a relationship with Jesus. Uh, One of the letters they were carrying on this trip was uh, what we have as the book of Philemon, which again is one of the letters, and it's it's a letter to Onesimus's master. Philemon to give him instructions, but now Onesimus, you know, here, you know, he's in this, he came to a relationship with Jesus. He's described as faithful to the point where Paul felt it was a worthy example. You know, and here he was serving Paul, no doubt, while he was in prison, and now he's serving as an emissary. He is one of them taking the letter uh, to the Colossians and then the letter to Philemon. Now, Paul refers to Onesimus here, notice, not just as faithful, but a faithful, loved brother. He doesn't refer to him as a runaway slave. A runaway slave in their culture was a serious thing. And Onesimus here, he was voluntarily returning you know, to his master Philemon. He was not continuing to run away. There had been a change in his life. And now he was going back. We wrestle with that, you know, in our in our culture, and particularly knowing what we know about slavery. Uh, you know, why would why why would he even be going back? You see, Paul here wasn't he wasn't addressing the issue of slavery. Paul here is addressing the issue of a man's heart, and this man's heart was changed. He's a faithful brother. A brother. You would never refer, you know, they would never refer to a slave in their society that way. But here Paul points out, you know, his new identity as a brother in Christ. One who is now living faithfully to God and faithfully to others in the church as well. He is a faithful brother. One that you should have that relationship with. 
He goes and he mentions Aristarchus in, in uh, verse 10, and Paul mentions him as a fellow prisoner. Now, he was a true friend, really, who stayed through trouble. He stayed there through trouble. You know, it's nice to have a friend who sticks with you when there's trouble. You know, they say sometimes you find out who your friends really are by who sticks with you through trouble. Well, you know, yes and no. Sometimes your friends are are messed up themselves, and, you know, and they have a hard enough time dealing with life. And But here... You know, Aristarchus was there, and he stayed there through the trouble. He had no hidden agenda. He had no ulterior motives. He was willing to be looked down upon, yet he stayed with his friend. To stay with somebody who was in trouble like this, you know, you, you wouldn't want to do that because then you're dragged down with them. But he was willing to do that. Now, the first time that Aristarchus is mentioned here is when he was with Paul and the silversmiths in Ephesus, Paul was ministering in Ephesus. He had been there for a couple of years. And they, the silversmiths caused a riot because during that time that Paul ministered in, in Ephesus, um, a lot of people came, came to a relationship with Christ. Now, Ephesus, the culture in Ephesus was centered around the, the goddess uh, Aphrodite, who was uh, the goddess of fertility. They had temple prostitutes that would go out and do their thing because that was considered an act of worship for them. And, um, you know, so they, you know, this was a big deal. Silversmiths made these little icons, uh, statues, whatever you want to call them, of uh, of the, the goddess, and then they would they would sell those. You see, and people that would come into Ephesus that, that was that was one of the claims to fame for Ephesus was that the temple, uh, you know, of Aphrodite was there, and so uh, the silversmiths made their living making these, you know. It was the first, if you ever went to the Museum of Science and Industry and they have these vacuum mold things where you can, you know, or the zoo, you go to the zoo, you know, up at Brookfield Zoo or something, and you can get a plastic porpoise when you're outside the porpoise thing or, you know, a, a, a molded elephant when you're by the elephant thing and, uh, you know, different things like that. Um, you know, that's the silversmiths of art. No, you know, worship those. But see, they would worship these. Well, when people started coming into a relationship with Christ, then, and they realized that who, you know, that, that Aphrodite was not, she was nothing. She wasn't a God. And they realized who the real God was and a true God was, so they were no longer interested in, you know, in buying these silver statuettes and amulets and all these things of, of, of worship for this false goddess. Well, it affected their business. They got ticked. One of the silversmiths got up and he, uh, this is not the first union, but a good union picture, you know, and he organized his, his buddies and they started this trouble and they came against Paul. Why? Because their pocketbook was being touched. And so they started a riot. And what we see there in Acts 19, it says, So the city was filled with confusion and they all rushed together to the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius, Aristarchus. Macedonians who were with Paul, they were his traveling companions, you see, because you don't want to be caught with the guy who's in trouble. You know, that's, that's just not what you want. Now, this is the easiest time for them to get away, really. When, when, the, when there's confusion, when the crowd's attention is, you know, is on a few others, it's, a, that's the easy, that's an easy time to slip away. Um, Aristarchus stayed. He chose to stay. 
After the trouble here in, in, uh, in Ephesus, they went on to Macedonia. And we're told then a little bit later in the next chapter, it says he, that's Paul, was accompanied by Sopater, the son of Phyrus, uh, from Berea, Aristarchus, and Sedenicus. You see, so here's Aristarchus again. He stays with them. This, again, would have been an easy time to bail. Why? They're changing locations. You leave in Ephesus, you go to another city. You know what? <laughs> My life's kind of here. i got to stay here. Or, you know, i got other things. I got other things i got to do. I can't be going with you there. Another easy time to step aside, but he didn't. Who would blame him, really? I mean, if he stepped aside at this point, but he didn't do it. He, he stayed there. He, he stayed with Paul. And then later, Paul's arrested by the Roman authorities. He's put on trial to face accusations by the Jewish authorities. Uh, he was really kind of arrested. And as you read through the accounts in the book of Acts, it says they kind of arrested him really for his own protection. Uh, that's how, how much he was opposed. And they wanted to have him killed. They wanted to kill him. And uh, so they put Paul on trial. The Jews came and accused, and the governor, who was Roman, wanted to settle down that this was his responsibility to keep peace. And if he couldn't keep peace, he was going to be replaced you know, by the emperor. And so he wanted to keep peace, so he would put Paul on trial against the Jews as they were, the Jewish leadership, as they were accusing him of, of, of things. And uh, during that time, Paul, who was a Roman citizen, said, I appeal to Caesar. That was his right as a Roman citizen. And so he appealed to Caesar, so they were going to now send him to Rome. So on his trip to Rome, it says, uh, you know, that when he had boarded a ship of, of Adramithium, Ad- uh, they put to sea, intending to sail to ports along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. You see, he's, he traveled on it. Now, the ship ran into a storm, and uh, it broke apart. They spent months getting to Rome. Uh, but here we're told, you know, that he went with him on this trip. And here Paul is telling us in the letter to the Colossians that he's still there. It was during this imprisonment that Paul writes to the Colossians here, and Aristarchus is still with Paul. He says, my fellow prisoner. Now, it's likely that... Aristarchus was there to take care of Paul's needs while he was under arrest. And that, you know, that, that there were, there were some who would stay with him and then they would, you know, almost be, after they would be, one would be there for a while, another would come in and take care of his needs. If somebody didn't take care of Paul's needs there, they weren't going to be taken care of. It wasn't like prison today, you know, where, where they're gonna, where they're gonna give you meals, um, you know, and nobody was bringing Paul bologna sandwiches here, you know, from the prison. He had to take care of that himself. If he didn't take care of that himself, it wasn't going to get done. And that's that's the way their prisons ran. And so here, you know, you have Aristarchus there, and he's he's probably taking care of Paul. Now, he was sent to Colossae, so he was free to leave. Paul wasn't. But, you know, Aristarchus was. And yet he stayed there with Paul and by Paul's side through all of this trouble. When, you know, when you're in trouble is when you really need a friend to stick with you. You know, sometimes just just even to be there with you. And that's what you have a picture of here. Aristarchus is one of those friends. He's, you know, he's going to stay with him. Now, Mark is also mentioned in verse 10. And if you notice, it mentions that Mark is Barnabas' cousin. 
Now, Barnabas was well known to them as Paul's partner on several of of his missions trips when he went out and shared the gospel, when he went out to tell people about Christ and he started churches. We called them mission trips. They called it life. You know, that's what they were doing. And so Mark was one of them, or Barnabas, excuse me, was one of them that went along on there. Mark had accompanied them on some of those trips, and one in particular didn't seem to go real well with Mark. We're not sure why, because during the trip, Mark left the group, uh, it, it doesn't tell us why. It doesn't mention why he left the trip, why he left them during that trip. But later it became clear that Paul didn't like that. He, that, that didn't sit well with Paul. In Acts chapter 15, it says Barnabas wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul didn't think it appropriate to take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and who had not gone on with them to the work. There was such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed off to Cyprus. Paul then chose Silas and departed. You see, their, their disagreement was, was, was to the point where they just, I'm just not going to have anything to do with this. You know, that, 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 that's, that's how, that's what it came to. It came to a parting of the ways here. But by the time Paul had written to Colossians, he and Mark had reconciled. And again, we're not given all of the details uh, about what, what happened there, but it seemed the rift in their relationship was well known. Because notice what Paul says there. He's careful to tell the Colossians. He said to Colossians, he says to you know that they need to welcome Mark. You know, you need to welcome him in. There was that time when Paul rejected Mark for ministry, but Mark didn't let that stop him. He kept ministering. He went with Barnabas. He kept ministering. And even Paul came to appreciate Mark. You have this word here, but also in 2 Timothy, he says, only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you. Bring Mark. Because he's useful to me in ministry. What I see here is that Mark worked on reconciliation. He worked on reconciliation. He didn't let past differences stand in the way. You know, he didn't, he didn't let that happen. We, I don't know why we sometimes do this, that we let past things stand in the way of a relationship. I realize it's difficult to let go of some things. I realize that sometimes, you know, the hurt is still there. Even though we think we've got we've, that we've gotten it healed, and sometimes we just see that person, you know, and and it's hard. It's difficult. Mark wasn't going to let that happen. Mark wasn't going to let that that what went on in the past keep him from this reconciliation. He continued to reach out to those who rejected him. He was rejected by Paul. Paul said, "This guy isn't coming." To the point where there was such a sharp disagreement that they parted ways. Mark wasn't going to let that stop him. He continues to reach out. Again, we're not given all of the details here, but what great qualities. He didn't let those past differences stand in the way. You know, he continued to reach out. How much time is wasted? How many, how many friendships are lost because people are not willing to work on reconciliation? Maybe a friend or a family member is coming to mind. Maybe God wants you to reach out to them and to be reconciled to them, to not let these past things. It takes forgiveness. 
Forgiveness means I'm not going to hold this against you. It means I'm not going to let this come between me and you anymore. I'm not going to let that happen. And it may mean we need to forgive over and over and over again. How many times should we forgive, Lord? Seven times 70? Here's a paraphrase. Jesus says, no, dude, that's not enough. It's not every single time. Seven times, you know, Peter thought seven times he was being generous. And Jesus says 70 times 70, not so that you can put a hash mark on a wall every time you forgive someone, but so that you just realize that every single time. Every time you remember it, you may need to forgive him again and again and again and again and again. You can't let that stand between you. You know, maybe God wants you to reach out to some of these people. You have to not be wasting that time. He goes on, he brings up Epiphras. It's the one Paul says the most about in verses 12 and 13. He describes Epiphras here as a slave of Christ. Well, we can look at this as someone who is totally sold out to God. Totally sold out to God. Now, not in an odd, freaky sort of way, you know, where, where they don't seem to be real connected with reality anymore. Um, you know, but, but somebody who is totally sold out to God. To be a slave for Christ here and what he's talking about means that all of someone's possessions, all of their aspirations, all of their time, all that they have been given over completely to Christ and are at his disposal. You know, a slave of Christ, that Jesus owns him. So that the per- this is important for us to grasp. So that the person no longer serves Jesus only as it fits into their schedule. Or only as time permits, as only, you know, as they're inclined to. But that they serve Jesus always and everywhere. Everywhere they're at. That that relationship matters, that they're totally sold out to God, that they, they hold nothing, that there is not a time that they hold anything back from God. That it is all open to God, all the time, anytime, every time. We should never lose sight of the fact that God has called us to serve him. And he has called us to serve him with others. What you have here about Epaphras is, you know, he was others, he was other focused. He was focused on others. Notice it says he's described here as always contending for the Colossians in prayer. Always contending. Some of the translations say that, you know, he's struggling, laboring earnestly or laboring fervently. One of the translations has wrestling. You know, there's the picture there. It, it, it's not an, not an easy thing. But he's always contending, wrestling for them in prayer. Notice why. He says, so that the Colossians would stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. You see, because not only did he pray for them, he also worked hard for them. It says he prayed for them and he worked hard for them. Epaphras knew that life would change. You know, he, he knew that it is made up of both highs and lows, those things we enjoy and those things that we don't, that we don't enjoy, but we have to endure. Who likes sickness? Who wants cancer? Who wants, to, who wants to struggle with lingering illness, with ongoing pain? 
with mental torment. Nobody wants that. But here you have a picture, you know, of someone who's who's other-focused through those highs and lows of his life. He continued to contend, always contending for them in prayer, always struggling and working for them. You know, it takes maturity and assurance in God, you know, to, to care enough, to be able to care enough to, you know, to see us and to work hard for us so that we can make it through the highs and the lows. Now, we need help through the highs, really, so that we don't become independent of God and wander away. And that's very easy to do. When things are going fine, you know, and, and we begin to think that I'm doing a real good job, aren't I? And what we do is we begin to wander away from God. We begin to forget that He is the one who is giving guidance and direction to our life. And that when life is good, you know, sometimes we just wander away. And then it's through the lows, it's so that we don't become so despondent that we walk away from God, thinking that God doesn't care. When the disciples woke up Jesus, you know, when uh, there was a storm, and it says Jesus was sleeping in the front of the boat. What a great picture, resting in the will of the Father there. And you have the opposite of the disciples and they're struggling and they wake them up. And do you remember what they said? Don't you care that we're about to drown? I can't imagine saying that to Jesus. Don't you care? I remember the one time when uh, Marcy was four months old and we thought it was a great idea to go camping in October in the Rocky Mountains <laughs> wasn't a good idea. We had a Datsun pickup truck. Um, that's a Nissan, for those of you who are wondering, what's a Datsun? A Nissan pickup truck. I don't even think they make them anymore. It was a little thing. And we had a cap on the back. Jenny and I and our four-month-old daughter were heading for Colorado. Well, want to save money? Shoved a mattress in the back of the in the back of the pickup truck and all of our stuff in there, and we're driving across and we we got to St. Louis the first night I think we got uh, near there and um, we <laughs> missed the exit twice. So when I finally got to the other side of St. Louis, we pulled off and we stopped and. Marcy's standing outside, and it was cold, you know, it was dark and stuff, and she's holding Marcy while I unloaded the stuff from the back of the pickup truck and shoved it in the front seat so that we could get inside on that mattress that I thought was such a good idea to bring along. And it was. Marcy cried, I think, for... It seemed like, I don't know, 72 hours, but it wasn't. You know, she just screamed, and we're inside this fiberglass cap. And let me tell you how loud it was. And I thought, we're going to get kicked out of this campground for a crying baby and stuff. Well, she finally settled down. Well, then, you know, we we made it out to Utah. And I remember I were at the campground still, you know, and did the same thing. Marcy standing out there holding, or Marcy standing, Jenny standing out there holding the four-month-old Marcy, and you know, and I switch all the stuff around, and uh, so she gets Marcy you know, in the back, and I went and took a shower, and I come back, and as soon as Marcy saw me, she started crying. 
there's a fine how do you do you i love you dad it's like why'd you bring me here you know uh, and stuff and uh, you know it's uh, and I remember praying while she's screaming inside of that of that fiberglass cap. And I remember praying, don't you see what's going on here? I did. I prayed. And it's a good thing I remember it because how rude. How rude to talk that way to God. Epiphras here was that friend who stayed through the highs and through the lows so that Paul wouldn't wander from God, so that he wouldn't get despondent and walk away from God. Other focused. Be willing to work, you know, for the betterment of others. That's, that's a result of maturity. You know, being self, self absorbed, you know, that, that it's only seeing things from how they affect me. That's immaturity. When we begin to look at everything, only how it affects me. We need people like Epaphras. We need them to help us to know God's will and to embrace God's will and to stay in God's will, which is ultimately better than our own. Let's go on, verse 14. There's two more I want to focus on, and we're going to wind this up. In verse 14, it says, Luke, the dearly loved physician in Demas, greet you. Now, uh, this Luke here is the, he's the writer of the Gospel of Luke. Mark, that was talked about, is the writer of the Gospel of Mark. You know, and Luke also wrote the book of Acts, but they're not the ones I want to focus on. Notice what it says here, Demas. He's listed here as one who was part of the group with Paul. But you see, it turns out that Demas is a friend that we mentioned with a heavy heart. We have those friends. In Second Timothy, Paul said, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas has deserted me because he loved this present world. We have those friends, don't we? This is a warning to avoid the trap of part-time Christianity. When he says here that Demas loved this present world, what he's talking about there is a life separate from God. A life that ignores God. When scripture in the New Testament, when it talks about the world, most often what it's talking about are are those people and those um, structures that ignore God and that take God out of the picture. And it says here that this is, you know, that, that, that he loved this present world, part-time Christianity. You see, Christianity is a relationship that affects all that we do and all that we are. It has an effect on it. It's a relationship with God that guides all we do and guides all that we are. To think that we can actually be a part-time Christian, a part-time follower of Jesus is to actually reject God. Now, I say that because, well, that's what God says. In 1 John chapter 2, it says, Do not love the world. Notice how many times world is mentioned in this, in this passage here. Do not love the world, that which leaves God out, that structure, that, that way of operating that just puts God to the side like he's, like he's not real, not existent, or you're a fool to believe in him. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of one's lifestyle. And there you, you see that you see the temptations there. 
You see the temptations. That's not from the Father. It's from the world, that which rejects God. And the world, which rejects God, with its lust is passing away. That's all temporary. But the one who does God's will lives forever. It's very easy. It is very easy to get distracted from our relationship with God. We live in a society, in a society, why can't I say that? We live, it's our society brings more opportunities and options and, uh, than we can possibly do. There is more. Those of you who had kids, think of how many things you could sign them up for. Between school, the library, the city, the parks, you know, you could, you could be doing three things a night. It's a little terrifying, isn't it? Multiply that times six. You know, and, <laughs> you know, it, 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 the world offers more options for you than you can possibly do in a day. There's, there's tons of opportunities. Now that that's not that that's not bad. Some opportunities are bad, so you know, just realize that. You know, uh, uh, I was going to say Stewie's, but it's not there anymore. Um, whatever it is, you know, any of those any any of those uh, you know strip clubs, and you see all the advertisements for them. Okay, so those are wrong. So there are some there are some things out there that are wrong, and but most of them are just, are just neutral. There's nothing wrong with soccer, basketball, and all these other. But you see, they can begin to take us away from God. And they can begin to interfere with our walk with Christ. There are more opportunities there. You know, there's more opportunities than we can possibly do. We need to choose which ones we will be doing, which ones are God's will for us. That's what God has Paul bring to Archippus' attention in verse 17. Notice there, it says, Tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord. So that you can accomplish it. Pay attention to the ministry. You may not realize this, but you will after I say it. Each of us has a ministry from the Lord. Every single one of us. I remember, you know, right about where Joanne said and stuff, uh, Mrs. Eby used to sit there. When I first started coming to church, Mrs. Eby, you know, Lorraine Eby was 90-something when I came. And she was... 90-something older, you know, when she went on to her reward. I can remember. And I'd walk by, and, I, I, and I'd, I'd say hi to her. And she had, some of you remember, she had really thick glasses. I don't think I've ever seen anybody with thicker glasses in my life. And I'd walk by, and I'd ask her, how you doing? Oh, all right. You know, she was kind of a, a, a bit frail and stuff. Oh, okay. She said, I don't know why I'm still here. She said, but God must have something for me to do. She got it. She's in her 90s and she knew she's and she's still something to do. We have, every single one of us has a ministry from God. And again, why do I know that? Well, because that's what God says. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from you, from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not from works so that no one can boast. You're not working for your salvation. That's a gift of God. God gives us salvation. You know, for we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus. For good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. God has these for us so that we would do them. 
walk in them, live in them, do them. We, we each need to be working in the ministry that God has given us to do. Doing the good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Every single one of us should be doing those good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, that, that's, a, that's an expression of stability and maturity as well, which he prayed for. Now, not helping with ministry, not being involved in it is immature. It's a sin of omission. It's ignoring the things that God has for us to do. It's thinking that everybody else can do it. It's not obeying God. Ministry is something that God does in us and through us as he guides us and empowers us to do the good works that he has prepared for us to do. I'm building a toolbox with Michael. Now, toolbox. Think tool tray, little tray, you know, we would have in the top of a toolbox. That's all it is. He's supposed to do this for Cub Scouts, and he's in Cub Scouts. And uh, we're doing it according to the Cub Scout rules because it's, you know, we're in this little badge thing. And um, so according to the rules, Michael's not allowed to use power tools, so I cut out the, the main pieces of it. And then he's supposed to, you know, with a handsaw, cut an angle on this thing and drill some holes and, you know, screw it all together and stuff and, and do all that. And, uh, you know, I could do this a lot faster without him. I really could. I'd have it done, you know. And I, I, all I have done is I've cut out the parts, and Michael and I have done some of the work on it. And then, you know, something else happened, and he got interested. And so I stacked them all up, and I set them aside. Now I could finish this thing, and I could finish it, you know, in, in no time at all, and have it done. But I'm not going to do that because you see, I prepared these parts ahead of time so that Michael and I could work on this together. And it's just going to sit in a pile in my garage until Michael and I work on it together. And then Michael's going to have something later that he'll be able to look at and he'll be able to say, you know, that uh, Papa and I did this together. There's the picture for you from Ephesians. That he created in Christ Jesus for us to do good works which God prepared in advance that we do them. That's the picture of ministry. God has prepared something for you to do. And we do it together with him. Not not as a project, but as life. As the life that we live together with him. And Archippus here, he was encouraged to continue with what God had given him to do, to avoid that part-time commitment. You know, Demas, it says, he walked away from what God had for him. And he embraced the world, that value system which leaves God out. Mark was there, but he worked on reconciliation and was a help to the ministry. Failure happens. Failure happens, but it doesn't have to be final. And because you failed at something doesn't mean you're a failure. Not not at all. The key to overcoming failure is to turn to God. You turn to Him in repentance when you need to, you know, and you be reconciled to Him when you need to, but you trust Him. You walk with Him. You let Him renew you. You let Him continue on. We can never truly, fully succeed on our own without God. We can't do it. The good news of the gospel is we don't have to. We don't have to do it on our own. When we live with Christ, we will triumph through Christ. We will be complete in Christ. And then people will say, 
I have this friend who's really following God. And I want to as well. Be that friend. Let's pray.